Resting in peace isn't always a guarantee, and it was certainly delayed for Elizabeth Siddle. This week, we're talking about the life and afterlife of the 19th century model, artist, and poet. Hey everyone, Christine here with a brand new episode of Footnoting History that's all about Elizabeth Siddle. My first exposure to her was through a 2009 BBC series called Desperate Romantics, which highly fictionalized her life alongside the artists who called themselves the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. But more on them in a minute. In it, Elizabeth Siddle was played by Amy Manson, and her husband, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, was played by Aidan Turner. And this was in a pre-Poldark world, for those of you who love that show. Anyway, as the series went on, I became fascinated with the true story that inspired it. And once footnoting history began, it was sort of inevitable that I would eventually cover this topic. So, here we are. Let's go into the Victorian art world. Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle, often called Lizzie, was born on July 25th, 1829 in London, England. Her parents were named Charles and Elizabeth. How we know her date of birth is actually an interesting story in itself. Despite being born in a period where we know many historical figures' birth dates, for about a century it seemed that hers was lost to the mists of time. Many works written that included her story in them didn't even attempt to mention when she was born. However, In the 1970s, Marion Edwards searched through a variety of records to solve this mystery. Edwards' finding was that Elizabeth was born on the aforementioned July 25, 1829. And it's been incredibly useful information for historians like me because it gives you the ability to sort of gauge how old Elizabeth was at each phase of her life when these events that we're going to talk about were happening. If you're interested in the records used to locate this date, I'm putting the citation for Edwards' article in the further reading section of the blog for this episode. Elizabeth grew up in a working-class family with a father whose occupation has been listed in various biographies as everything from an ironmonger and optician to a cutler. By 1849-1850, so when she was around 20, Elizabeth was working in a dressmaking and millinery shop. Now, at this point, she came into contact with a man named Walter Deverell. He happened to be an artist. And he also happened to wonder if she would model for him. Elizabeth couldn't have known it at the time, of course, but with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that this was a turning point in her life. Agreeing to sit for his work, opened the door for her to become entrenched in the Victorian art world. And if she had said no, for better or for worse, we might not be talking about her today. But we are, so we know, she said yes. You might wonder what made Elizabeth an appealing subject. Well, she possessed a vibrant red hair, thin limbs, and a complexion so pale that many have commented that she looked frail. Her appearance, which some called sickly, others viewed as ethereal. Deverell captured her as Viola in his painting depicting Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, and soon she was modeling for many of his associates. Those are the men that I mentioned earlier who call themselves the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. The Brotherhood was an 
interesting entity. Formed in 1848 by a small group of artists who were unhappy with the current state of art in Britain, it sought to create a new wave, which was actually bringing back a very old one. The Brotherhood sought to capture and revive the pure artistic style that prevailed about 300 years prior, with bright colors and themes reminiscent of those common in the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance. That's before the appearance of the Italian Renaissance artist Raphael, thus the name Pre-Raphaelite. Multiple Brotherhood artists agree that Elizabeth possessed attributes they wanted in their paintings. She posed for members like William Holman Hunt and John Everett Millay. Millay's painting of Elizabeth as Ophelia in Shakespeare's Hamlet, which shows her half-submerged in her watery grave, pale skin and red hair on full display, is the one that I used as the main image for this episode. But Elizabeth's most significant relationship was not with these men. It was with another member of the Brotherhood, Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Dante Gabriel Rossetti was a bit over a year older than Elizabeth, the son of Gabrielle and Francis Rossetti. Now, you may have heard of his sister Christina. She was a poet who wrote things like In the Bleak Midwinter, which was set to music and even now is used as a popular holiday carol. By the time Elizabeth met Dante, he was a painter and poet who adopted a rather freewheeling bohemian lifestyle one that didn't always align with the styles praised by the dominant and influential Royal Academy of Art. So it's not really surprising that he was front and center in the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, rejecting the Academy. As with the others, Elizabeth modeled for him. For example, in his painting of Beatrice meeting Dante at a marriage feast, she is the woman who embodies the titular Beatrice. But their relationship transcended that of artist-model and they became romantically involved. Although I have talked so far largely about Elizabeth's role as a muse, she was also interested in creating art and poetry, which Dante fostered. You would be right to pause this for a minute and wonder why, if Elizabeth was an artist in her own right, I've used Millet's Ophelia as the main image. Well, that was not done because I felt that her work as a model was more important than her work as an artist, But because I know Ophelia is a more well-known piece of art, and I wanted people to immediately connect a possibly unfamiliar name with a more likely recognizable image in order to spark interest. If you go to the post itself, and I hope you will, you'll see not only my favorite example of her as a model for Dante in the painting A Christmas Carol, but also examples of her own works, such as Lady Affixing Pennant to a Knight's Spear, which deserve to be seen. John Ruskin, one of the most famous art critics during Elizabeth's lifetime, agreed with me. He saw so much potential in her craft that he became her patron and funded her for several years. Then, in 1857, she was the only female artist to be displayed at an exhibition of pre-Raphaelite works which I hope was a moment of pride for her. Alongside her painting, Elizabeth also wrote poems, though she did not see them published, and she continued to model for Dante, both formally and informally. I know this all sounds terribly romantic. You know, the alluring shop girl becomes the muse of the artist and then finds her own artistic voice along the way. 
But as with any relationship, things were quite complicated. Elizabeth's health was never robust, and she turned to laudanum, which was a common drug of the period made from opium. It was highly addictive and often used to dull pain, and once she started using it, she never stopped. Dante, meanwhile, as inspired and fixated on Elizabeth as he was, was not faithful, and he dragged his heels when it came to the question of marriage. By the late 1850s, Elizabeth and Dante's relationship was rocky, and Elizabeth went to Sheffield, where she took classes at an art school. However, her health continued to be an issue, but one that ultimately brought the couple back together, and, it appears, finally got Dante to pop the question. They married on May 23, 1860, and embarked on a honeymoon to Paris. Their nuptials and honeymoon gave way to another life-changing event, a pregnancy. However, any happiness that Elizabeth and her husband felt about their future as parents was dashed because their child was stillborn in 1861. This already upsetting event was made even worse when Elizabeth died less than a year later on February 11, 1862. That means that she was in her early 30s. According to the contemporary report in the Daily News, Dante and Elizabeth set out in the early evening to dine with a friend, although he urged Elizabeth to stay home when he thought that she appeared drowsy. After dinner, the couple returned home, and Dante left again a little while later when Elizabeth was bound for bed. When Dante came home again, he found his wife unconscious with an empty file of laudanum on her bedside table. A doctor was summoned, but even pumping her stomach to get the laudanum out didn't wake her, and Elizabeth died early in the morning of the new day. Mr. Payne, a coroner for the City of London, led an inquest, which was a standard investigation, into the cause of Elizabeth's death, and ultimately, the verdict was an accidental death caused by an overdose of the painkilling, tranquilizing laudanum. Dante was utterly distraught over his wife's death, and it permanently haunted him. In his grief, he placed a book of poems he wrote in the coffin with her before she was buried in the Rossetti family plot in Highgate Cemetery. Despite this verdict of accidental death, rumors circulated, and in truth, they continue to circulate even today. Some people did and do believe that Elizabeth's overdose was accidental, while others were, and are, convinced that it was suicide, saying she was miserable in her marriage or irredeemably depressed over the stillbirth of her child, and that she had even left a note that Dante destroyed so the truth would not get out. All of the years between Elizabeth's death and now, with speculation upon speculation piling up, plus the fact that, well, you know, Dante and his family could have covered up any of the more sordid details surrounding her death that they wanted to, mean that we may never uncover the definitive details of Elizabeth's last hours. Dante soon moved, but he decorated his new home with Elizabeth's artwork. He reached out to his sister Christina, who was preparing a volume of poetry, and gave her several poems written by Elizabeth in hopes of having them included. However, Christina did turn them down, saying that they were beautiful, but they were too deeply sad to put out to the public. Coincidentally, during this time, there was 
also an uptick in interest in Britain of attempting to contact the dead through seances. And although he moved away from this when the fad fell out of fashion, Dante did gather his brother and friend at seances in order to contact Elizabeth more than once. Whatever Elizabeth said or didn't say to him from the other side, it did not give Dante lasting peace. His life after her death was not the most pleasant one, although he did continue to paint, featuring models like Fanny Cornforth and Jane Morris, and he had long-lasting and occasionally dramatic associations with both. At the end of the 1860s, Dante began thinking again about that book of poems that he had entombed with his late wife. He wanted to edit and publish the poems, but since this was the 19th century and not the 21st, there was no digital copy saved somewhere that he could just pull up and print out. To reunite with these poems, he would have to open Elizabeth's coffin, an idea that he eventually committed to. In the 1860s, much like now, It wasn't common to just dig up your loved ones in order to retrieve something that you buried with them. But Dante was well-connected, and he succeeded in getting permission to retrieve the book. He later explained that this action was okay by writing to a friend that Elizabeth's devotion to art meant that she would have approved his quest and wanted the poems to see the light of day. In October of 1869 the exhumation of Elizabeth's coffin took place. But no, Dante Gabriel Rossetti did not attend. There were innumerable romanticized versions of this story that came around, including anecdotes about the book being nestled by her cheek. But it was not likely a very glamorous affair, as Elizabeth was buried seven years prior. But the book was obtained, water-damaged and worm-eaten as it reportedly was, and Elizabeth was once again laid to rest in Highgate Cemetery, where her grave remains to this very day. The following year, 1870, Dante published his retrieved poems along with some other ones in a volume that he aptly titled Poems. Although Dante would eventually get into a sparring match with somebody who didn't like the poems, many of the reviews were positive. For example, the Paul Mall Gazette declared, quote, Here is a volume of poetry upon which to congratulate the public and the author. While the graphic reported that Dante's work was, quote, one which every lover of poetry will place on his shelves, on his table, or in his pocket, or wherever else he cared to place works which he most admires and esteems. Including that Dante might end up in the, quote, temple of poetry as a result of his work. Of course, some positive reviews were written by people who knew him, but a good review is a good review, and people will accept them. Unfortunately, though, the exhumation and resulting volume of poetry did not change the overall downward trajectory of Dante's life any more than the seances. He eventually suffered a complete breakdown, became paranoid and delusional, and was watched over intently by concerned friends, family, and his doctor. Further, Dante had an addiction to chloral hydrate that he took to treat insomnia, and although he continued working as always, his personal life and health deteriorated until he passed away on April 9, 1882. He was buried in All Saints Churchyard in Kent, near to where he was when he passed away, and not, as you might have anticipated, 
with Elizabeth in Highgate. Now, regardless of the separate locations of their graves, Elizabeth and Dante's lives are forever bound. Although Dante's decision to unearth Elizabeth could have ruined his reputation forever, Jan Marsh, who has written extensively on both halves of the couple, believed that such a dramatic action actually increased Dante's appeal to biographers. And I can't even argue that point, because after all, I was fascinated enough by his decision to give it an entire episode. When Dante died, Elizabeth had been dead for about 20 years. But exhibits of Dante's work, staged shortly after he passed, featured a painting of Elizabeth that had never been seen by the general public before. It was called Beata Beatrix, and it was completed after her death, so even Elizabeth herself would not have seen the final product. It contained multiple references specific to his wife, including the depictions of poppies, which are a source of the opiates used in laudanum. To study Dante's art was to see Elizabeth's likeness time and again, but Elizabeth's own art was regularly overshadowed by the fame accorded to her husband, or dismissed as derivative of his. Until in the last 50 years or so, through the work of historians like Marsh, it has been discussed more frequently. In fact, I just learned that right now, that is November of 2019, Elizabeth is among the women featured in an exhibition called Pre-Raphaelite Sisters, currently going on at the National Portrait Gallery in London. Elizabeth's poems, too, are now readily accessible, and have been for over a hundred years. Although Christina Rossetti declined Dante's request to include Elizabeth's poetry in her volume in the mid-1860s, they were eventually published by Dante's brother William between 1895 and 1906. They have since been regularly reprinted, quoted in biographies and scholarly works, and are online and in published collections. In life and early afterlife, Elizabeth may not have had the most restful happy go of it, but she continues to intrigue. In 2015, Britain's The Guardian featured my favorite of Elizabeth's poems, Dead Love, as its poem of the week. It is, as you might expect, evocative and melancholy. But it would be remiss of me to talk so much about her without ever sharing any words that came from her own pen. So, the conclusion of her poem is also the conclusion of this episode. Here we go. Sweet, never weep for what cannot be, for this God has not given. If the merest dream of love were true, then sweet, we should be in heaven. And this is only earth, my dear, where true love is not given. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to Elizabeth and Dante. Check us out on Twitter, we're at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, where our username is Footnoting History. And remember, the best stories are always in the footnote.